Those two bear a striking resemblance. I was reflecting as they were singing that that particular song and different arrangements has been sung as a congregation through the song leaders several times, or at least once or twice during the feast, and we've had it for special music more than once. And I'm wondering if there's not some message that God is giving us there. No matter how dark the valley, no matter how dark times are ahead, we have nothing to worry about as long as God is with us. And he's given us a name recently that was there all along, Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think that's very comforting as we are about to plunge into the abyss of world affairs. You know, we live in a very mouthy generation, I guess you would say, today. There seems to be no respect for anything or anybody for the most part. People will say anything, it appears, it seems, about anybody. And it seems to be increasingly worse. I was talking with someone yesterday and I began to reflect a little bit. You know, when my grandparents were rearing their children, their children never talked back to them, never mouthed off, never got sarcastic, never whined and cried and for their way. They simply did what they were told or they got knocked into the middle of next week. <laughs> this is the way it was. And pretty much the whole society was that way. When my parents were raising my brothers and sisters and me, You didn't talk back. You were respectful. You said, yes, sir. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. More yes, ma'am than you did no, (laughs) ma'am. Or you got knocked into the middle of next week. Just the way it was. The children showed respect for the parents. When I was up jerking my children, they didn't talk back. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. They didn't give us any lip, give us any mouth, or they'd get knocked into the middle of next week. First time my oldest son mouthed off to his mother, at least that I heard, and I think it was the first time he actually stood up on his hind legs and crowed. I had just come in the kitchen door, which was behind them. The living room was in the front. There was a couch across the middle of the living room, and then there was some big picture windows on the front uh, with a wall under them. And just as I walked in, he opened his big mouth and talked back to his mother. I just kind of hit him from behind and flipped him over the couch, and he woke up against the far wall looking at me. And he never tried it again, at least in my hearing. I blame a lot of this today on television, because almost every program has mouthy kids that are talking back to whomever. And that's funny. Maybe it's funny because it started out as an unexpected response, because the society as a whole was not that way, So it was kind of funny in sitcoms to have children react that way because it was, you know, the the point of humor is that it comes from somewhere unexpected. Any joke, they'll lead you this direction and suddenly they'll reverse on you and come back from another direction. And maybe that's what they did in television, I don't know. Uh, But it got to where there's a whole generation of people who are dealing with or trying to deal with a whole generation of parents trying to deal with a generation of children who have watched TV. They've gone to school, and our children mix with them, and they're mouthy, and they talk back, and they do it to their parents, 
and they don't have to work or do chores much anymore. And then the kids come home and they want to be mouthy with their parents and sometimes the parents don't quite know how to handle it because the kids are getting this day and night through television, through school kids, and however it might come to them. So it makes it very, very difficult. Now I want to project that. This isn't just easy kids, easy parents. This isn't a sermon on child-rearing again. I want to project that to the world. This is a world today, and it has been really since Adam and Eve on down, who talks back to God, who is mouthy, obstinate, stubborn, does not want to do what God says. And sometimes when God speaks, it's as if he wasn't even there. Like when you talk to some children sometimes and you're lecturing them on something and, hello, anybody home? They're somewhere else. The mind is gone far. Any, any, I'll, I'll think about anything other than what that parent is standing there saying seems to be the thing. It's just like you're, you're looking into a vacuum. There's something going on in there, but you can't see it. And you probably really wouldn't want to. And that's the way it is with God in this whole world. It is a world who does not want to hear Him. It is a world that will give Him lip service, some of it, but not do what He says. It's a pathetic situation. How would you like to be God and be outright ignored like you weren't even there, and have a certain percentage of the population that says, oh, we just came from nothing. There really isn't a God. He isn't there. And they certainly live that way. We talk a lot of times about the horrible things to come at the end of this age how there's going to be famine and pestilence and war and captivity and so on. And it is not a very pretty picture. And perhaps if we're not careful, we get in our minds a picture of a very angry God rather than a loving God who sent his only begotten Son that the world might not perish but have everlasting life. Maybe there's so much of the fake love thing in religion that we go too much sometimes the other direction. And we see God as only angry. And certainly, with what has happened in the church, and his threat to spew us out of his mouth, and then him carrying forth with his threat in the church, we've had to focus on that in order to understand what has happened, in order to understand how to react. And he's, he's hit us pretty hard, hasn't he? Turned his face from us, he scattered us, and he's not done scattering us yet. There's still three big churches that have to be knocked down and ministry stopped as per Zechariah 11. So it isn't finished yet. We all are hoping and praying that at some point God will turn his face back to us, as he says he will do. And he will shine and bless us and so on. And yet we still talk about the problems in the church and we talk too about what is about to befall this nation. And you know what it really amounts to? It's because we sass God, we talk back to God, we whine for our way, and we ignore Him and act as if He is not there. He's going to knock this world in the middle of next week. He is going to basically have to destroy most of mankind to get their attention. He's going to have to do with the world the way I did my son that day when I flipped him over the couch. Now, that's not normally the way I reacted, but that day when I heard what I had never heard before, I just reacted. I got his attention. Eyes were about that big as he sat there against the wall looking at me. And that's the way this world is going to be. They're going to have big eyes, 
and humble attitudes, and all of a sudden, they'll be all ears. Whatever you say, just lay off. Whatever you say, I'll do it. It's, a, it's an ad, attitudinal change that has to occur. I want to go to Matthew 8 for a moment. I'm trying to recover from Bill stealing my sermon. <laughs> Usually it's the sermonette guys that cry and whine. That's all right. You left several sections of the Bible that you didn't get to. Matthew 8. Verse 5, And when Emmanuel was entered into Capernaum, there came to him a centurion beseeching him and saying, Eternal, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Emmanuel said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Credible attitude, the first thing he said. I'm not worthy that you even come under my roof. What an incredible respect he had. Now, this was a Gentile, probably a Roman, high in the military. Have you ever seen arrogant, proud people in the military? Usually, you don't tell somebody in the military or a policeman or a sheriff, especially a young deputy, anything. They know it all. They're in charge. Or maybe even in Worldwide Church of God, if a minister tells you how you will eat your steak, how arrogant that is if you stop to think about it. You don't care how you like your steak. You will eat it this way. Now, I don't take away from the fact you love the man, and he probably had other redeeming factors, or some redeeming factors, not other ones, because that one's not one. But it's so easy for people with a little power to use it as great power, and in a wrong way. This man had a different attitude than is normal. Just not the way the world is. It's not the way we as human beings naturally are. I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but just speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. You don't have to go there. You don't have to come under my roof. You just say it, and I know it'll happen. He wasn't converted, wasn't in the church, didn't have God's Spirit. He just had a jewel of an attitude, an incredible belief, an incredible trust. And Emmanuel said to him, I will come and heal him. Oh, no, I already read that. My servant shall be healed, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he talks back. No, wait a minute. Wrong verse. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. When Emmanuel heard it, he marveled and said to them that followed, Truly, I say to you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Israel, who claimed to obey God, who claimed to believe God, who claimed him as their God, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and especially of Moses that he was dealing with, didn't believe like this. He'd not seen that in Israel. I say to you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Gentiles, dogs, will come and sit down in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom, physical Israelites, shall be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When I see this kind of attitude in a Gentile, and I don't see it in Israel, there are going to be some adjustments when it comes to who sits in the kingdom of God. When Emmanuel said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, 
so be it done to you. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. Maybe not in the next minute, but within the hour. What an incredible example. How often has God seen that since he created Adam and Eve? How often has he seen anybody that would simply do what he says, not talk back? You created the earth. You created the universe. You created me. You gave me life. You gave me breath. You gave me water and food. I'll do anything you say. I'm your servant. I'm your slave. Take me on yours. How often has that happened in this world? Ever. No wonder he was so amazed. Let's go to Matthew 7. Verse 6. Here he is in this famous sermon we just went through in a series of sermons. Give not that which is holy to the dogs. Now, he's not talking about four-legged creatures running around with their tails wagging. He's referring to all those peoples on earth other than what were physical Israelites. He had commissioned them to go first to Israel. And he was telling them, don't give that which is holy to the dogs. Neither cast you your pearls before swine. He was calling everyone but Israelites, dogs and pigs. That's the way they were looked upon by the Jews. Kind of hard to take, isn't it? For people like me that have some Indian in me and no telling what else. I'm not all Israelite. But I'm part, so I'm okay. Not necessarily. <laughs> I could go out, out accursed. doesn't matter what our blood is today. But why? Lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. Of course, the Israelites turned and rended them too, didn't they? What did the scribes and the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews do? Couldn't tell them from the Gentiles around. Now, I read that one for a purpose, not to hurt anybody's feelings if they're not physically of Israel. But I read it in preparation to go to Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21. Matthew 15, verse 21. Then Emmanuel went from there and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a woman of Canaan, Canaanite. They had gone into the land of the Canaanites and had to drive them out, kill them. They were despised of Israel. A woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, you son of David. She recognized his lineage. She recognized who she was. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word. It was as if she were not even there. Wouldn't even speak to her. Is this a God we worship? Well, yeah, it is. He had his reasons. He answered her not a word. And his disciples didn't pay any attention to her. Finally, his disciples came, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. You wouldn't speak to her, and now they're, she's bugging us. Please, send her away. Get rid of her. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I am not going to speak to her. I was not sent to the Gentiles. My purpose here is limited. Remember when we read in Luke 4, where he was quoting Isaiah 61, and he only read up to so far and didn't include the vengeance of the Lord because it wasn't within his purpose during that lifetime here to do that. He only read as far as was his purpose to fulfill during that 33 and a half years he was on the earth. And here he had a limited commission from his father, and he had been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
He called Israel sheep. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. My daughter is vexed of a devil. She's demon-possessed. I don't know what she was doing. Maybe she was throwing herself in the fire. Maybe she was trying to kill herself. Maybe she was screaming and ranting and raving. Maybe she was cutting herself with knives. People with demons do those things. This woman was in dire straits with her daughter. She's vexed with a demon. Please help me. But he answered and said, It is not fitting to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. How would you have felt if you had been a Canaanite woman and he said, Go away, dog, you filthy cur. Now, he didn't say filthy cur, but that's the way it went through her mind, isn't it? It's like when someone spits out, wop, guinea, kike, monkey, spick, wog, wop. Did I say that? Honky, pale face. One size fits all. Now, some of you who might have some of this or some of that Immediately your toes go like this and you start saying those things. Because it hurts to be looked down upon by other people. And he called her a dog. That's what the Jews called her. Here was one she looked upon as the son of David, the Lord, the Eternal One, and he was calling her a mutt. At what point would your children rebel and talk back? And she said, you're right. Truth, Lord. Everything you've said is true. How many would get that kind of reaction if they went up to somebody of another race, any direction you want to call it, and use an epithet like that? Why, the human nature, the vanity, the ego, the self would rise up. People are ready to do murder over that kind of thing. Not this woman. Whatever he said, it's true. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. What an incredible attitude. I recognize you as the master. I take the place of dog. Would you please throw me a crumb off the table? My dog's happy to eat the crumbs off the table, even if I call him ugly and stupid when he does it. He still wags his tail and licks them up. He doesn't take offense. He's not human. If he was human, he would. Or would he ever talk back if he was human? Then Emmanuel answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you wish. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. He went outside his will. He went outside his purpose. He went beyond his commission. Because this woman had such great belief and trust and was so absolutely humble before him. With no call to do so. With no other example to do so. She recognized she was a Gentile. She recognized who he was. And she absolutely trusted and believed and swallowed every ounce of pride in her. If we 
started talking to people that way today, people would start walking out the door shaking their fists. They just would. What an incredible attitude. Do you think God loves us? Do you think he meant it when he said, I have so loved the world that I sent my only son, not just that Israel, but the world might be saved? Now, I'm not going in that direction too far today. That's better done on the last great day. and Probably some things will be said then, but I want to go a little bit different direction today. Before I start, though, I'm going to have a little intermission here because I meant to say something at the beginning before I got into this that I think is worth passing along as an insert here. It doesn't have anything to do with this particularly, but in a way it certainly does in an overall sense. That is that someone mentioned, and I hadn't thought of it, in terms of the Jubilee. The pieces of the puzzle, once you start studying something, just seem to fit more and more and more. More pieces come and the picture becomes more complete. Remember when Herbert Armstrong started studying? When his wife brought the Sabbath to him first? About 1926. He studied it for some months, along with other things. I think it was by 1927 that he and his wife started keeping the holy days all by themselves. Jubilee year. At 77 is, 27 was. God gave them in the, in 26 then would have been a seventh year of release. That's when God began to release him from the shackles of this world and give him truth that would lead to the beginning of the end time church of God. And it blossomed in 1927 in the Jubilee year into both of them keeping his Sabbath and his holy days together, which pictured the millennium to come, the end of this age. The first information God gave them was of the Sabbath and the Sabbaths, the holy days and feasts. I think that clicks in very nicely. It didn't get really organized until about seven years later where a group of people beyond just two began to branch out and fight against the Babylon that we are in. And Zechariah 1 talks about 70 years later that captivity would end and he would allow us a way out and in 2000 and late 2002 and into 2003 in late January, he gave us land whereby we might begin to separate ourselves from Babylon about 70 years later. It was only a start. Even it was only a start when they left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and they still had a lot of work to do and the captivity was not completely turned loose. But they had a start. That clicks in beautifully with what we see happening around us. Someone also mentioned that Herbert Armstrong died in 1986, and we entered a spiritual wilderness somewhat prior to his death, but certainly at the time of his death, where they reinstituted wrong doctrines almost immediately. And if you wander in the desert 40 years, the wilderness spiritual wilderness, you come up to from 1986 to 2026. Interesting numbers again for them to click in. Maybe that ties in pretty well with where we're going today. Are we still ready to talk back to God? Or are we ready to say, yes, Lord, whatever you say. You're in charge. You're the boss. I won't talk back. I won't whine. Yes, sir. Whatever you say, that I will do. 
because he is in charge and everything is working right in sequence, just the way he prescribed that it should. It's all coming together. There are very, very few people who recognize that. Very, very few people who pay any attention to the years of release and the Jubilee. Very few people who understand the Passover. Very few people who understand the calendar. And on and on it goes. I want to express appreciation to all of you here in the audience, as well as to those on the phone lines, wherever you may be, that you have been pliable, you've been malleable, you've been teachable, you've been willing to understand and to grasp, and that is almost without precedent in the history of the world. Only a few, a few thousand would listen in Elijah's day, only a few thousand listened in Peter, James, and John's day, and many of them fell away. Quite a few listened here at the end. Many did. Many have fallen away, and only a few now are willing to listen to God. Not very many. Incredibly, after 60, 70 million people have walked this earth, breathed the air that God made, eaten the good things that He made on earth, enjoyed the sunshine and the fresh air and the moonlight at night and the stars. Out of those 60, 70 billion, or however many, there will be 144,000 who will be willing to say, Yes, Lord, I'll take the crumbs off the table. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in your kingdom than to rule the whole world. Very few. You're some of them. Incredible as that may sound. Hard-headed, stubborn, intransigent as sometimes we are. I am amazed, in a way, that you have gone through a transformation in the understanding of prophecy and how it affects the church and the world. How you've understood against everything else that the church has taught where the real place of safety is. In Christ, certainly, but I mean the physical place, and we're sitting in it, I believe, today. It's quite a switch. From all we talked about in Petra all those years, isn't it? I'm amazed that even this many have been willing to see that in Scripture. You saw the change in the order of the Passover. One night, right here in this room, and God sent thunder and lightning to approve it, even though it was done at the spur of the moment without even full understanding. But we came to see that it was correct as we studied. We kept Passover a certain way for all those years, decades, thinking it was correct. We came to see from Scripture that it was wrong. We didn't lose many. Just a very few. You were willing to listen. You were willing to learn. We've come to understand the new heavens and new earth. The Father and the Son come down at the beginning of the millennium. The land will be healed. He'll dwell with men, be their God. We've come to understand what will happen to the church, what the remnant is. You've been willing to leave lands, homes, fathers, mothers, children, Because God said, leave the city, go dwell in the wilderness, and there I will deliver you. You've done it because the prophet Zephaniah said, gather yourselves before the decree of destruction 
of the financial system occurs. It's Zephaniah 1 and 2. To me, that's incredible. The people would understand that and actually do it. Because most won't. You've been pretty malleable. You've understood that our country is the great whore. Not many are willing to accept that. We understand it has to be destroyed. We had a change in doctrine, understanding that at the return of Christ, we are changed and go up into heaven to the Father's throne and spend a year as a honeymoon instead of the day of the Lord being the last year of the tribulation. We weathered that, came to understand it. We understand the meaning of atonement is the wedding now. Most people in the church would not grasp that. We have seen a change in the name. 2.1 billion people will worship Jesus, a false Christ. We've come to understand that there's an alternative name that God gave way back because he knew what would happen. And we can now call him Emmanuel. And it's underpinned by Scripture. makes sense. It comes at a time when we certainly need God with us. And you saw that. That has been presented to a lot of people a lot of ministers who absolutely rejected it. It will be presented to a lot more. And I told the two fellows who presented it to me that I knew what percentage of ministers would accept it. And he and I both held up our hand at the same time and gave the same percentage. Zero. At least initially. Some may at some point. I think some few will, but probably not right away. We called Satan Lucifer for decades. Came to realize that that was a counterfeit. The real name there is Hillel. Satan the devil's name was Hillel. Very similar to Hillel, who changed times with a calendar. A Jew led by Satan. How many understand that there are only 144,000 first fruits in the church? Not very many. Most of the churches are out there trying to preach the gospel, hoping they can save so many, many more. And they can't do it because God has limited it. How many will follow the land Sabbath and Jubilee and understand it and adjust their lives accordingly? Very few. Who understand about wilderness and towns without walls that have to be built and God placing his blessing on his people in the desert and that the two witnesses will be there and that's where they'll work from until the tribulation starts and they begin their message to the world. How many grasped? How many would accept something that far out? even though Herbert Armstrong claimed to be Zerubbabel, and maybe there was a light type there, but he died. He didn't finish the temple. In fact, it fell apart. I could go on and on, I suppose. We've dumped Mr. and Master for first names like Emmanuel, James, Peter, John, did. Paul didn't take the title Master, Teacher, Rabbi, just Paul. How many churches of God today would accept that? If you're going to tell people how they're going to have their steak cooked, you've got to be called Mr. <laughs> you know, what color's your car got to be? And what brand? It got wild. How many people would accept what we have taught about food, dress, entertainment, and the influences of Babylon in our life? How many churches, organizations do you know who would read a couple articles about how the necktie is a phallic symbol in modern society and take them off? I don't know. I guess I have to give it to you. <laughs> You're amazing. And I say this after most of you have already given your feast offering.
I mean, what's the gain? <clears throat> but I do, I do not believe that what we have been doing is lost on God. He has witnessed since Adam and Eve billions and billions of people who talk back, who laugh derisively, who scorned him, who would not do what he says, who rebel for whatever reasons against nearly everything he has ever said. Or maybe they were willing to follow most of it, but they rebel on one or two or three things. They just simply will not do this. We used to call it years ago the sticking point. What is your sticking point? You see this, you see this, you see this, you see this, and then one thing comes up that you just will not accept. That's where you stick, like a stuck door. Will not open no matter hard you pull, how hard you pull on it. There are a lot of people that have that. One thing could keep any one of us out of the kingdom of God that we wish to rebel about. Just one thing. God is looking for the attitudes that he saw in that centurion and he saw in that woman who had a daughter with a demon. That's the attitude he's looking for. He absolutely could not help himself, if you will. Go away, dog. Stick your tail between your legs and slink away. I am only here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Beat it. Or as we might say, get. So she bugged the disciples, and they came and bugged him. No, 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 no. I'm not going to talk to this woman. Please, Master. I'll take the crumbs. What an incredible attitude. Unbelievable. Almost unheard of. If Christ's jaw would drop, it would have been right there. I've never heard. I've never seen such an attitude. Be healed. It was beyond his will, beyond his commission, beyond his purpose, beyond what he was sent to do, but he could not help himself. I wish I had as genuine, as deep, as trusting, as faithful an attitude as that. Wouldn't it be neat to know that when Christ returned and he saw you standing there or laying there with dirt in your face and said, I remember that attitude. That one's got to come out of there. I've got to have that one. That one's mine. I'd love for him to have that attitude toward me. And I would hate it if he said, I don't know. I've been thinking about that one. What's it going to be? Got a coin? <laughs> I'd hate to be, maybe laying there I wouldn't notice it so much. But if I was standing there and I saw the look on his face of I'm not quite decided on that one, that would be so disheartening, so frustrating. Oh, please, oh, please, oh, please. Heads, heads, come on, come on. Why push it? Why walk the edge of the cliff? Why not just believe like that dog did? There is not a chance in heaven or on earth that that woman is going to miss being in the kingdom of God. Now, she may not have been in the early New Testament church. She may have died as a dog. 
But she's coming up in a resurrection. And her attitude will be so beautiful that there's no way she's going to miss out on the kingdom of God. Now, she may or may not have did a part of the New Testament church. It doesn't say later on. If she had opportunity and heard and saw, I suspect that she would have been. Maybe she didn't. I don't know. But can we grasp, can we realize that we have a greater opportunity than she did? We can be first fruits. We can be part of the 144,000. We can be part of the very bride of the ruler of the universe, second in command under the Father. The wife of the bosom of our Lord. Wow. You'd think we'd believe. You'd think we'd trust. You'd think we could walk in faith. Because we have to, to please Him. Walking by sight will not please Him. I walked down the hill from this hall the other night after the ice cream social. And it was as dark as the inside of a cow. There were no street lights up on this end. We got around that hill. And it was so dark after the last car left and the last possible ride... And the young lady had gotten out and said, I'll walk down with you. And we were kind of trying to feel where each other were. We could not see the edge of the road at all. Just kind of feeling with your feet, shuffling to see if the pavement was still under you. Got down to the gate. It was still so dark that I couldn't find the chain and the lock to lock the gate. I had to push the thing back around and then feel down on the ground below the gate to find the chain. It was so dark. It wasn't scaly and didn't rattle when I found it either. I was thankful for that. But I managed to get it picked up and wrapped around the, the gates and got them locked somehow. And then we kind of felt our way on down past the mud puddle and got where we could see. That's walking, but not in sight. That's walking when you can't see where to go. If you walk by sight, you place your feet where it looks like solid ground and you go there. That requires no faith. Whatever. It's when you can't see where your foot's going to land. And you go anyway, knowing that God in heaven said, this is the way to do this. I will do it no matter what. And if I step into an abyss, that's just too bad. Because I believe Him, and I'll do it. You brethren have been able to walk away from lands and homes and families and come out in the desert not knowing for sure where you were going, or for sure, what you were doing. Abraham walked. He did what God said. Stepped forward in faith, even though he could not see the answers. We have not yet seen many of the blessings that God has promised us if we would do what we have done. So we're still trusting, walking in faith, that those scriptures will be fulfilled. I believe with all my heart they will be fulfilled, and I'm not about to quit walking where I'm walking, even though I do not yet see the answers, and neither are you, because you have read the Scriptures, you believe God, and you're not going to talk back, you're not going to whine, you're not going to gripe, you're not going to complain, you're going to continue to do what you have read that God says to do. And you're going to believe that one day 
all these promises will be fulfilled because God said so. Just as you would believe that your daughter would have the demon cast out just because he said so. That is walking by faith. That's what this is about. To truly believe God. Not to talk back to Him. Let's go to Zechariah 2, if you will. Zechariah 2. Let's understand something here. Perhaps we do. Verse 6, he says, Hey, come forth. Flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, says the Eternal. We know, having been here many times, that he's talking here about the end time. He's about to introduce the two witnesses in chapter 3 and 4. It's talking of now. And he has spread us abroad and scattered us as a church, as the four winds of the heaven. Deliver yourself, O Zion, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. Some translations say, flee to Zion, you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. That's in the RSV and in the Amplified, I believe. And we fled to an area very near Zion. And we're sitting in Zion, the feast today. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, after the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you. For he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. He's talking here to the people who are willing to flee Babylon, who have been scattered and spread abroad. And he calls those willing to do that the apple of his eye. What is an apple of your eye? If you have an orchard full of apple trees, you have a special tree in that orchard that produces the best apples, and you walk up to that tree and you look at all those apples growing on the tree, the apple of your eye is the one that looks the best, the juiciest, the firmest, the sweetest of all. That is the apple of your eye. As we fulfill what God tells us to do here, He begins to notice us more and more. He can't overlook. Out of billions of people walking the earth today who yammer and talk back and scorn and disagree, He cannot ignore the few. who will follow his ways, who will just simply do what he says. I submit to you that as we obey and continue to obey this, we are becoming the apple of his eye. I'm not prepared to look at you, include myself, and say we are the apple of God's eye. To me that seems arrogant and presumptuous. But neither can I deny that if we do what God tells us to do right here, that we are becoming the apple of His eye. Out of all those whom He has scattered, He is calling some together. And you and I happen to be some of them. It's not because we're great, it's not because we're smart. It's just we're some of the very few who are willing to say, I'll do that. I'll do that. All I can say is thank you. 
Sometimes it gets kind of lonely, screaming and hollering, lifting your voice like a trumpet. Sometimes it gets very frustrating. Scream a message you know most will not hear. Most will pay no attention in the church of God. But I'm very thankful for you who will. All of you. Because it's not me you're listening to. If it was me, (laughs) you could care less. Who's he? Nothing. Nobody. But what you're listening to are the words of God. Right straight from his word. For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, the daughter of Babylon, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. We just read in Malachi the other day that he will suddenly come to his temple. He will turn his face in happiness and joy and smile and beam at his people. He will do that. They obey his commands, follow his instructions. He can't help but notice them. He just can't help. He will see them. We weren't much when we started, were we? Just scattered bits of saliva, along with everyone else. And we'd have remained there if we hadn't begun to listen to God, if we hadn't quit. You see, you tell people, you're not supposed to be preaching the gospel around the world right now. Well, they laugh at you. That's what we're supposed to be doing. They won't pay attention to what the scriptures say. They just won't pay attention. So they keep on doing something that is futile and won't work. Now, we're doing something out here that to them might be be futile, and they say it's not working. But I say, God says it will work. You don't pick the apple of your eye until it's ripe, until it's ready. You leave it on the tree until it's time. Then you reach out and take it. And when it's time... If we do what we're supposed to do, he'll reach out and take us. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Let's go to Zephaniah 3. Just back a few pages. Go down to verse 14. Here's where he's told us the financial crash is coming. He's told us to gather ourselves, get away from it. It's going to turn out good. Verse 14, Sing, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O Israel! Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Eternal has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. It would be nice to know, wouldn't you feel like singing and rejoicing when God turns and says that, and says, I've wiped out all your sins. All your iniquities are gone. The King of Israel, even the Eternal, is in the midst of you. Emmanuel, God with us. You shall not see evil anymore. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, the church, Fear you not, and to Zion, let not your hands be slack. The Eternal, your God, is in the midst of you. He's mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in His love. He will joy over you with singing. He says, sing to him. And he says, I'll sing to you. Wouldn't it be neat if the man who is about to become your groom would sing at your wedding? We'll sing a new song before him. We'll sing to him at our wedding. 
Looks to me like he'll sing to us. And in this context, he's talking about even before the kingdom comes and before the wedding occurs. He's coming to his bride in the desert. He says that he will come to her in the Song of Songs in the secret places of the stairs. I believe the Grand Staircase National Monument is no coincidence or no fluke. I believe that Zion being in the middle of those stairs is no coincidence and no fluke. I believe the great white throne is no coincidence or any fluke. Nor is the Virgin River, O Virgin Daughter of Zion. Don't ever talk back. Just do what he says. It'll work out. 